Good morning, church. It's so awesome to be here. Our first lesson is from the book of Isaiah, likely written around the 8th century BCE during a period in Israel's history of acute wealth inequality and internal hypocrisy. This passage thrust us into the midst of a divine ceremony, Isaiah's prophetic commissioning. Our reading reminds us that it is God alone who must be exalted, and that true prophetic action always flows from a position of humility. Listen now for the word of the Lord as it comes to us in Isaiah chapter 6, beginning with the first verse. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that, he had, that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraphs touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us listen together for the word of God. As it comes to us in the third chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning with the first verse. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? 
Very truly, I tell you, you speak, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen. Yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Join me in just a quick prayer. O oh God, open us to your grace, your love, and your healing presence as we reflect upon your word this day. Amen. It's a curious thing, Trinity Sunday. Churches that follow the liturgical calendar spend weeks living in and through the mysteries of Christ's incarnation, death, resurrection, and sending of the Spirit. And yet we are provided a single Sunday to unpack the fullness of the Godhead three in one. And as luck would have it, it's my turn to preach this day. <laughs> it's a fool's errand, and I don't think it can be accomplished. But at the same time, I, I can't seem to shake this question. Why do we place Trinity Sunday at this point in the church calendar? If the Trinity is the gracious mystery from which all reality emerges, why not place Trinity Sunday at the beginning of the church year? And the more I considered that question, the more I began to see the great wisdom in the placement of this day. The Trinity comes to us as the culmination of the story of God's saving encounter with the world in Christ. It was, after all, a profound insight of the early church that we can only begin to glimpse the shape and texture of the Trinity after we have reflected upon God's decisive action for us and for the world in Christ. We might state this insight another way. God's mysterious inner life, it's not something that's open to us for observation. The mystery of God's triunity resists all attempts at object objectification. Instead, it is revealed to us in glimpses and fragments through God's loving action. To echo the words of one of my favorite theologians, Dorothy Zola, when we ask ourselves what God is like, we must, first, we must answer first by looking at what God does. God's being is made known to us only through God's action. And God is the God who saves humanity and liberates the world in Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate, crucified, and risen Christ. Christ, therefore, is the lens, we might say, through which the prismatic colors of the Trinity shine forth into our world. 
So I promise I'm not going to get deep into like Greek metaphysics or anything like that this morning. We're going to skew very closely to the story of Jesus this morning to sort of enliven our understandings of the Trinity. And we're not going to attempt, this Trinity Sunday, we will not attempt to explain the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Walter Brueggemann has said, we have to make do without perfect clarity or monumental definitions. Instead, we must learn to work with glimpses, fragments, signs, and symbols. God does not entrust us with certainty, probably because God knows how we behave when we think we have all the right answers on our side. I think there's great wisdom in that. So this morning, we will approach God in that spirit, looking for glimpses that might spark challenge and inspire us, fueled by a holy curiosity that, given room to breathe and bloom, might open us to the magnificent love of God for the world. The lectionary text for this morning from John chapter 3 is perhaps a strange place to begin our reflections on the Trinity. The story of Nicodemus has tenuous connections at best to our theme. And this is, of course, to be expected because the doctrine of the Trinity was formalized and codified in a series of church councils well after the writing of John's gospel. But it's here nonetheless with the story of Jesus and Nicodemus that I think we should fix our attention. The thematic focus of John's gospel from beginning to end is light overcoming darkness. You see this metaphor of light and dark woven throughout John's gospel. And so it's no coincidence then that Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the cover of night. We learn from the text, and we can infer that Nicodemus was an aristocrat, a religious leader beholden to the prestige, power, and privilege that came with his membership in the highest ranks of the Jewish court. He has seen the signs that Jesus has performed wild displays of miraculous power. And it's not yet clear whether Jesus is devout or demonic. His power is unvetted. And therefore, Jesus is a kind of threat to the status quo. No doubt then, Nicodemus is here on a sort of reconnaissance mission, we might say, to investigate whether Jesus is going to abide by the codes of the religious establishment. And I can't help but feel that Jesus is being a little bit snarky in his response to Nicodemus. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Some translations have said born again, but it's truer to the original text to say born from above or born from the top, we might say. Consider for a moment how this statement might strike a man like Nicodemus, whose very way of life, whose material comfort and social well-being and status was a condition of high birth. To be born again is not necessarily a warm and inviting proposition for this man. It is the disavowal of all that he held dear. In a similar passage in another gospel, we are told that a rich young ruler approaches Jesus to ask how he might inherit eternal life. Jesus tells him to sell all that he has and to give it to the poor. That is the level of reversal, of disruption, of complete self-denial that Jesus is here indicating to Nicodemus. To be born from above or born of the Spirit does not mean to become a better person in the plain sense of living virtuously. 
Rather, to paraphrase the theologian Rudolf Bultmann, to be born of the Spirit means that we are given a completely new origin. As to whether Jesus is going to submit to the religious authorities of his day to abide by the strictures of, of the Jewish clerics, Jesus appeals to the higher authority of the Spirit. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I think it's clear to say that Jesus isn't here to affirm the status quo, the settled conventions of power. He's here to turn water into wine, to heal the blind, to raise the dead, to explode the very order of things into unexpected and magnificent arrangements of grace. In short, Jesus is here to save and it is precisely at this point that we encounter one of the most iconic passages in all of Scripture. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, which is, of course, the foreshadowing of Jesus' crucifixion, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's here that the curtain peels back just a little, and refracted through the lens of Christ, we gain a glimpse of the inner life of God. As we said earlier, God's being is really only knowable in God's action to us as humans, and the decisive action of God is love self-emptying, crucified on our behalf, unending love. And this love is poured out for the world. St. Augustine, using, so to speak, the, temple, the tempo of love, wrote the melody of the Trinity in this way. The Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved, and the Spirit is the love between them which overflows and encompasses the entire cosmos. I think that's a really stunning depiction. But I think we also must never forget that while God's love might be the tempo, the cross is the key to which the melody of the Trinity is set. We might say that the melody of the Trinity is written in the key of the cross. The mysterious inner life of God is opened up and poured out to you and to me, to the entire world, upon the cross. That's the Christian story. In a paradox that confounds our imaginations even as it enlivens them, the desolation of the cross becomes the site where God's life illumines the world. I'm haunted by a scene of, I guess we would call it like magical realism, in Marilyn Robinson's incredible novel, Gilead. Um, and it probably, I, I'm gonna read from it because it probably illustrates better what I'm trying to get at here. In the story, the aging Congregationalist minister, John Ames, is writing a memoir for his son. In the passage I'm about to read, he recounts a time during his childhood when he and his father went to search for his grandfather's 
forgotten grave in a godforsaken corner of Kansas. Here's the story. That graveyard was about the loneliest place you could imagine. If I were to say it was going back to nature, you might get the idea that there was some sort of vitality about the place, but it was parched and sun-stricken. It was hard to imagine that grass had ever been green. Everywhere you stepped, little grasshoppers would fly up by the score, making that snap they do, like striking a match. My father put his hands in his pockets and looked around and shook his head. Then he started cutting the brush back with a hand scythe he had, he had brought. And we set up markers that had fallen over. Most of the graves were just outlined with stones, with no names or dates or anything on them at all. My father said to be careful where I stepped. We worked a good while at putting things to rights. It was hot and there was such a sound of grasshoppers and of wind rattling that dry grass. Then we scattered seeds around, bee balm and coneflower and sunflower and bachelor's button and sweet pea. They were seeds we always saved out of our own garden. When we finished, my father sat down on the ground beside his father's grave. He stayed there for a good while, plucking at little whiskers of straw that still remained on it, fanning himself with his hat. I think he regretted that there was nothing more for him to do. Finally, he got up and brushed himself off, and we stood there together with our miserable clothes all damp and our hands all dirty from the work, and the first crickets, crickets rasping and the flies really beginning to bother, and the birds crying out the way that they do when they're about ready to settle for the night. And my father bowed his head and began to pray, remembering his father to the Lord and also asking the Lord's pardon, and his father's as well. I missed my grandfather mightily, and I felt the need of pardon too. But that was a very long prayer. <laughs> Every prayer seemed long to me at that age, and I was truly bone tired. I tried to keep my eyes closed, but after a while, I had to look around a little. And this is something I remember very well. At first, I thought I saw the sun setting in the east. And then I realized that what I saw was a full moon rising just as the sun was going down. Each of them was standing on edge with the most wonderful light between them. It seemed as if you could touch it, as if there were palpable currents of light passing back and forth, or as if there were taut skeins of light suspended between them. I wanted my father to see it, but I knew I'd have to startle him out of his prayer. And I wanted to do it the best way, so I took his hand and kissed it. And then I said, look at the moon. And he did. We just stood there until the sun was down and the moon was up. They seemed to float on the horizon for quite a long time. I suppose because they were both so bright, you couldn't get a clear look at them. And that grave and my father and I were exactly between them, which seemed amazing to me at the time, since I hadn't given much thought to the nature of the horizon. My father said, I would never have thought this place could be beautiful. I'm glad to know that. The transformation of a place of estrangement, abandonment, and pain into the presence of light, love, and hope. That is what God does on the cross. 
That is what God does in our hearts. That is what God does in our world. The life of the triune God floods into our world through the transformative power of love. And we are called, like Nicodemus, to forget ourselves, our possessions, our power, our privilege, and get carried away in that gracious tide. We are called to find our lives as we lose them in the pursuit of the healing of this world. We are called to be seized by the new reality of God's overflowing love, which is breaking in here and now, if only we have eyes to see, transforming darkness into light, death into life, despair into hope. That is the work of the triune God. And I better bring the sermon to a close before my latent evangelical fervor really begins to show. So let's draw this to a close. In the end, perhaps we're all a bit like Nicodemus, skulking towards Christ in darkness, in ignorance, constrained by our notions of how things ought to be, incapable of seeing things as grace and prophetic love might rearrange them. Near the end of John's Gospel, we encounter Nicodemus once again, this time in the light of day, standing at the foot of the cross, dressing Christ's broken, lifeless body with myrrh and aloes, wrapping him in linen and placing him in a garden tomb. I think it's John's way of sort of incorporating a beautiful bookend that reminds us that the cross is our path from darkness to light and that the loving embrace of the triune God will guide our way. Amen.